All right, everyone, I have a favor to ask you. You see, we've been working on this podcast for about a year and a half now, and we're really itching for some feedback. That's the one thing about podcasts is that although you all feel like you know us, we don't really get、uh, any feedback from you very often. And so, what we're going to be doing is launching a Mac Emerge podcast program evaluation survey. You'll see it on our website when you visit. It'll be a banner at the top. But also, if you check your inboxes, you'll see that we've asked for people to fill out the survey. Please take a moment to give us some feedback. It'll be very valuable to us. We want to make sure that we're resonating with you as an audience, and we'll also want to make sure that we're hitting all the topics that you like. So please, if you don't mind, spend a couple minutes on us because we've spent a lot of time to make great content for you. Thanks. Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians, so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Thanks again, everyone, for listening into our Mac Emerge podcast. Today is our June episode. Wow, it's、uh, June already, and I guess we're already in the thick and things of COVID nineteen. But we're all hanging in there, the Mac Emerge crew, and we're going to try our best to get you the best listening products for you to take a, take a listen to during this pandemic. Today, I have a special guest, someone that you guys are very very familiar with,、uh, Dr. Teresa Chan, one of our co-hosts as well.、Uh, she's going to talk to us、uh, on, in combination with myself about something that's very very important, at least to me and her, and as well as many of our. Listeners, hopefully, on Mac Emerge, and it's that social media in medical education as well as clinical education, but also during the era of COVID nineteen. So, I don't want to keep talking,、uh, Teresa, but、uh, tell tell me, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's、uh, definitely a strange time. I'm usually kind of on the road, traveling a lot for my academic work, and、uh, being kind of housebound instead is is、uh, definitely a, a strange thing to happen, you know. So. But、uh, I guess that's probably why I think social media is a great way to connect with people and stay in touch. Because a lot of my friends that I might have seen on the conference circuit,、um, I'm staying in touch with them by doing online things like、uh, tweeting on social media or blogging with them, writing with them, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess really during this COVID time where we can actually meet face to face and and do academic half days together and go to a conference and shake hands and. Exchange knowledge face to face. Really, my source of information has come from online. Whether that's the virtual conferences that you're doing, and with our last teaching the account segment and talking about virtual clerkship and social media, really the full med world. That's where I'm learning most of this COVID and other information from. And I know, I know, I think everyone here knows that you're very heavily involved in that. So today's episode, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about how people can get into social media and how that's impacted our Uh, way of learning, especially during the pandemic, and also before, obviously.、Uh, and so, tell us a little bit about the impacts of social media and how it can help us get 
essentially more knowledgeable in uh, realms such as medical education, clinical education, and research? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think that uh, social media is just like any other kind of meeting space. Uh, you have to kind of exist first in order to uh, have a chance to be able to reach people. So a big part of what we uh, have to acknowledge is that existence is a very important part. <laughs> I mean, other than Wi-Fi and battery, those are the two other essential elements. Uh, but you can think about it that uh, in order to reach people on social media, in order to learn things on social media, you have to exist. So if you don't have a Twitter account, if you don't have an Instagram account, uh, if you're not kind of like participating and reading the blogs and podcasts and 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 commenting here and there then you're kind of out there but you're not really optimizing the flow of information to you and so a very well curated list uh, of people that you follow on social media especially on twitter for instance is a great way to stay connected with people who are in the know around medical research uh, in terms of at latest advances in clinical care. Um, and you can really find your tribe, I think, online quite a bit. It's called something called a virtual community of practice. Um, and people have written about this. Myself, I've written about it. The idea is that online you can use hashtags or filter the people that you're working to understand their knowledge and be able to distill kind of the the commentary and the conversations that are out there. So I, I find it's really nice to start off slow when I'm first getting into existence and uh, start an account and follow some people that you actually know in real life. So I started uh, in 2013. I'd had an account since 2009, but I didn't actually use it. My brother just said, get a Twitter account, you'll want it later. And then when I was finishing residency, I asked one of my mentors, John Sherbino, how do you stay on top of things when you're not necessarily going to half day all the time because you're working or other things like that? And and he uh, looked me in the eye and he said, Twitter. And I giggled and I thought he was joking. And then he's like, no, seriously, Twitter. And I said, tell me more. And he explained to me kind of how he was using Twitter. And it's not like he wasn't following Kim Kardashian or uh, or, or people <laughs> like that. He was more following people who are makers and shakers in uh in open access education. So people like Michelle Lin or uh, Chris Nixon. Uh, these are people that run some of the big blogs. You might have heard of Michelle's blog, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, or Chris Nixon's blog with Mike Cadogan uh, is Life in the Fast Lane. And any Emerge doc who's ever done any kind of Googling will have landed on Life in the Fast Lane, whether they know it or not, because they have the ECG library to end all ECG libraries. And it's a common teaching tool and learning tool that we use all the time. For sure. I mean, I think even before I was interested in emergency medicine as a med student, I was looking through that to go through my ECG learning for medical school, right? So uh, those are very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, original gangster OG uh, references. <laughs> and I guess it all started, uh, you know, a lot of it, it came from the free open access medical education world and, and Twitter and other uh, social media outlets are definitely a big part of advertising and also making sure that the, the world is up to date with those awesome resources. Uh, and it's funny because you're kind of the OG yourself almost, right? I mean, I think you don't give yourself enough credit. You're, you're kind of the, the Twitter, uh, Twitter god right now, for sure. One of them. Uh, I think a lot of people follow you for sure. Um, and I think yeah, one of the I things that... Yeah, I have some that... followers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. An understatement. Very, very, uh, very understated. But you know, I think for me, someone who probably started Twitter much later than you did and someone who kind of started maybe only about two years ago, um, 
you know, I think I needed some tips to get started. And I think you kind of hinted at a couple of things. So what if you're, say, a junior med student or a junior staff or resident and want to get started in the Twitter or Facebook or any of those really social media outlets? What are some recommendations from your end to, to get started? What are some things that you should do, some behaviors? Uh, which, what should you post? What are some rules? Can you comment on some of those things? Yeah. So I think my first tip is you have to exist. And when you start a Twitter account, make sure you don't take the default suggestion they give you. Um, add things like MD student or MD at the end to see if it, you can get your name, but with a specificity. It's important, I think, right now, especially in the age of COVID, it's become very abundantly clear that uh, those of us who have... Um, authority and 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 presence need to clearly demarcate our expertise and then so i think that you should own it especially if you're a junior faculty member or a junior attending physician uh, you've worked really hard to get to where you are and you are actually in fact an expert in emergency medicine so you should be proud about that and i think you are kate that that's what you're um definitely able to comment on and so definitely, I think that that's a part of the optimization. Part of it is like putting a photo. It's as simple as making sure that people know you're not some anonymous person that's impersonating, let's say, Kevin or myself, right? Like the idea would be make sure you have a picture that's identifiable as you, right? I think that you should probably think about whether or not you want to link it to your institutions, whether that's a hospital or your university. And for me, that was a no-brainer because I tend to use my Twitter account more professionally. And so I am both on the social media team for our department of medicine. Uh, I'm the social media lead there. And also I am on the social media team of our hospital. So it was uh, obvious for me to kind of pivot in that way. Not everyone chooses to do that, but you have to make that decision. Regardless of whether or not you are actually claiming that you're affiliated with uh, any of those other entities in your bio, though, uh, you just have to be wary that people may see you that way regardless, right? Because you might well be intentioned to uh, not comment on their behalf. I think that people can still look up where you practice on CPSO if you're a practicing physician, or if you're a medical student, they might know where you're going to medical school, so or resident where you're training, right? So these are things that are the reality of it, and I think that I always have a filter of anything I wouldn't say in a large room with a microphone. I probably shouldn't type on Twitter, and so that's kind of like my uh, go-to filter. And I think it's about having a network. So for instance, one of my good friends, Aline Pardon, who's the program director, uh, Dr. Pardon often sends me a text message that's a, that's a preview of a tweet that he wants to send, including the GIF, and says, hey, what do you think? And so he asked me to peer review his uh, tweets. <laughs> and it's cute, right? But it's actually something that I think is really important, is that you're not doing this alone. You have other people that are around you, and they can help you out when you actually don't know what you want to put out there or if you uh, have done something wrong they can help adjust and clarify and maybe suggest that you take something down if it's offensive and you didn't intend to so i think that having a community of people around you that are networked and helping you out definitely is something that you can do for sure very very wise tips i think you know from my point of view i think that making sure you're professional i think is something that uh, definitely needs to be said obviously you can have a little fun with it make jokes and whatever but making sure that things like obvious things like patient confidentiality is upheld and that you also don't want to uh, make very offending comments so i think those are kind of the universal and it sounds very obvious but things that uh you know sometimes in social media you can get kind of heated and i think that's something that uh, we need to ground ourselves in for sure otherwise i think someone from my point of view, where I kind of started relatively new in the last couple of years, I think I had a little bit of this 
being afraid to put myself out there. And I think that once I had mentors like yourself and Brent Oma and a few others kind of encouraging me to to get out there and ask questions and make comments and you know uh, provide uh, kind of your my expertise into the the Twitter and the social media world, I think I've gained a bit more confidence. And from there, I've got to actually meet a lot of great people and build a network, like you said. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think you know the initial kind of cold feet is normal. Mm-hmm. But I think that getting yourself out there and, you know, uh, adding valuable comments yourself into social media, I think is is a great way to start and get yourself uh, into the fold for sure. I definitely think so. And I think even before COVID, we, we, we saw that coming, right? So that um, if we as physicians didn't get online and talk about the truth behind science and medicine and do education there, that that's where people were hanging out. And when we were absent, it's like, we're a bunch of ostriches with our heads in the sand. And then there are lots of people out there that are selling other things or communicating misunderstandings or untruths. These are, maybe they're not lies, but maybe they're misrepresentations of the truth. And I think that that's our job, right? Like, I I mean, we have seen the power of social media across all sectors in our lives right now, whether it's American politics or, you know, the World Health Organization or, uh, you know, everyone's getting in this game. Like uh, that, Kevin, you know, like the Canadian group, which is a, a blog that I help run, and they've been linking up with the American Heart Association to make infographics, because that's the reality of the world: is that large organizations like that are noticing the work that we're doing on social media and asking us to partner with them because they know we got game and they need it right so i think that that's just the reality of it is that um the world has shifted and we not all of us but we need some people to stand up and say how can we communicate with uh, end users like our uh, clients and patients how do we make sure we advocate for the right causes and how do we get out there to make sure that our voices are heard for sure i think those are you know additionally wise points and and i think that brings me back to some of the other kind of benefits of using social media. And I want you to talk a little bit about this, if that's okay. But can you talk a little bit about branding? Because I feel like people, you know, especially when you're new and or kind of a smaller, you know, presence, you want to kind of create yourself, make yourself into something. Can you talk a little bit about branding and social media and how we can use that to to kind of bring a little bit of presence and bring our personality into social media and, and get uh, some kind of followers and et cetera? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I I have a very different read on branding. I think academic branding, for instance, or branding in general about yourself has to be authentic. Even companies, when they bring in branding experts, the modern branding theory is around really around what is the value that you add to society and how can we message that out there? And I think that that's at the end of the day, what I would challenge everyone to think about is that what do I stand for? Who am I? And how can I contribute to the cacophony of voices online. And for me, it was knowing that I have a strong interest in medical education, always have. I have engaged in medical education research and scholarship, and I wanted to make sure that people understood kind of where I stand on those topics. And so that's kind of where I started. Some of that has blurred into a merger of social media and medical education. And some of it also extends into educating people about what emergency physicians do and who we are and how our emergency departments work and bringing along with us uh, people who are paramedics and nurses and, and engaging those really great conversations online so that we can 
really show everyone what it means to be in emergency medicine. So whether you are someone who's just getting started or whether you're someone who's been in the game for a while, I think it's good to take a step back and just calibrate and think, what do I want other people to think of when they think of me? And that's essentially branding. Even though some people have an aversion to the term, at the end of the day, we're always thinking about brand. We just might think about it as presence or identity. Uh, there's so many other things, but this is an outward identity that you can meaningfully curate. And that's the difference between branding and just your identity, because there are parts of my identity I can't control because other people construct their version of who I am in their brains. And so I can only go so far as to put out a certain kind of message and then people can take it with it. So branding is only half the battle when it comes to identity formation online. That's really interesting. And thanks for that. Now, I think we have to circle back to what's obviously, you know, the elephant in the room, which is COVID, right? I mean, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Tell us tell about how you've been getting active in using those virtual social media worlds to, to get more active during the present uh, pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I think about how I've been active online in three different ways. There's the open online, which is on Twitter or Instagram. I'm really more of a Twitter gal. And we've been putting content out there. So everything from my tutorials on what kind of meals I've been cooking during COVID, all the way through to kind of more morale boosting stuff. I've been trying to make sure I amplify other voices that are awesome that I think are saying valid points that might have less followers than I as well. And so that's kind of where I situate myself. Another group of people that I've been relating with would be the Canadian M team. So I've been working with that team behind the scenes uh, in a closed social media network on Slack, uh, where all the Canadian volunteers from coast to coast, we have people from Halifax all the way to Victoria volunteering for Canadian, and we've been creating content. And so we'll message back and forth, and we'll work on Google Docs, and we'll do all this blended stuff to be able to create different learning products for people. So for instance, one of the big projects that I helped, and you helped with, Kevin as well, is something called the Frontline Primer Series. And that was meant to be a primer to help people refresh if they were redeployed to emerge. Thank goodness that hasn't happened a lot here, but we've had some physician assistants who've uh, popped on the scene at our shop and, and they're usually in other clinics, outpatient clinics and stuff. So had that primer, it has been very useful to them, right? And so for other places where maybe you're a little more short-staffed, that's the work that we've been trying to put together. Another team I've been focusing on is the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team, or ALIUM, and there we've been putting together learning experiences for residents. So first is they've been working on a project called ALIUM Connect, and I've been working working on the program evaluation for that. So really more kind of nerdy, scientific -y stuff. But we also put together a bunch of learning resources for teachers who suddenly had to put all of the curricular online. And so we created a burst series of uh, posts that were around teaching in the age of COVID and how you might use uh, digital content in a different way to reach your students and trainees. Is there something that some things that you don't do? I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot. Wow. <laughs> Good for you. That's that's amazing. And well, I the most the, the most exciting thing, actually, Kevin, uh, would be the virtual conference that happened last week, actually. So we uh, for the Make Master program for faculty development, because I'm the assistant dean of faculty development right now, we had our annual conference. We were going to run downtown at David Braley, um, which is uh, in the center of downtown Hamilton. Uh, but obviously, because of various policies that go on right now and physical distancing is still in 
order. The conference couldn't go on in that way. And so on May 26th, we actually had a virtual conference, the first ever, which is quite nice to do because it was a theme developing the future. So we pivoted into a very future-facing version of a conference. And we had four parallel tracks, a keynote speaker from Philadelphia, and uh, some large group sessions. And you presented on the podcast and with some of the other team members. And we had workshops and stuff like that from uh, everything from feedback to how to be a consultant to others. Like, There's definitely such rich content that we were able to deliver in that way. For sure. That was an awesome experience. And I think it's kind of forward thinking, obviously, and hopefully it continues on uh, as kind of the the pillar to uh, and the structure and the skeleton that we use for future conferences. And hopefully we can do face to face conferences again in the future. I think that's something exciting. I love, you know, the networking aspect of that. But the experience that we had last week was was also phenomenal. So thanks for putting that on. But obviously a lot of work, uh, you know, organizing that for sure. So it takes a team and it's not just me, but rather the whole faculty development team was behind me on that one. So pretty awesome. And all the volunteers that actually stood up and said they'd do their workshops online uh, instead of in person. So I thank everyone for getting involved. For sure. It takes a village, right? It takes a village to grow a program, right? So, but, you know, kudos to your team for sure on that and, and had a great time. So I think we're kind of nearing the end of our segment. Any last minute comments or thoughts that you want to bring to our uh, listeners, especially during the pandemic period at this moment? Yeah, I think that social media has become a venue for learning that shouldn't be ignored anymore. So I know that not everyone's super jived about it, but what I would suggest is try to get on there, but try to make sure that you curate a list of people who are other fellow clinicians so that you can see what they're talking about. You don't have to jump in and you don't have to have a brand and you don't have to put stuff out there. Maybe you just want to have an account to lurk. A lot of people do that and you should start with that until something really piques your interest. Maybe something that you want to have a, a voice upon. Maybe you decide like some of our residents that you want to work on gathering PPE or what Ari Greenwald wanted to talk about with physical distancing. These are all initiatives that really speak to the core of why you want to get out there and why you suddenly need that platform to have your voice amplified. And so I, I do think that it's okay to start off and just listen and read and en- engage in, in that, in that uh, receptive way. You don't always have to get out there and put your a voice out there if you don't have anything to say. And when, though, you get to the point where you have something to say, that's what it can be useful for. Um, and to have uh, Kevin and I and other people from the Mac and Merge podcast team or other f- clinicians in our group amplify your voice, that's that's what the power of this is. Absolutely. It's that networking, it's that teamwork that we do together to to make sure that we amplify our voices and, and support each other, and especially during this uh, difficult time, for sure. Thanks again, T-Chan, for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you and for you to share your expertise to, to our listeners. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this month's episode. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to you about a very important topic to many of us. Parenthood. Dr. Allison Yancey, a current Emerge staff in Kitchener-Waterloo and recent graduate of the Mac Emerge program, has kindly volunteered her time and expertise to give us a slight glimpse at what it's like to be a parent 
during residency. Is it more challenging than you thought? Is it easier than you thought? Or there benefits you maybe didn't think about? How well and how far can you plan in advance? These are some of the questions and many others that we hope to address on today's episode. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, Allison is a mother to a beautiful two-year-old baby girl. Allison, what would you say was the best part about being able to go on maternity leave during residency? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so I took my maternity leave. It's a bit of an unusual spot for some people um, in the EM year. Uh, so I did my CCFP and then the, the additional third year program. And I took my leave sort of halfway through that year. And it was, for me, probably the best part about it was that I felt really well supported leading up to it. But then also when I came back, I was really well supported. So I went back on to rotations and I was still a resident. Um, so I had lots of um, assistance. And you know, when you've been off for a little while, things can sometimes feel a little bit rusty. So it was a really safe environment to come back to. And that was probably the, the best part about that for sure. That sounds awesome. Now, did you plan, if I may ask that question, to leave <laughs> during that time or during that year? No, there wasn't a lot of planning involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's reality for a lot many of us. I shouldn't say that, but you know, things just didn't go according to any sort of plan that we had. So we just kind of rolled with it. Would I have stuck it in the middle of my uh, third year again? I don't know. Um, but I'm on the other side, it all worked out and I'm happy and have the daughter that I have. So it was worth it. Now, you said one of the best parts about taking the maternity leave was the fact that you felt so supported and you mm -hmm. felt that when you came back, you could pick up where you left off, for lack of better words. Mm -hmm. Was there any challenges with doing that from a professional academic standpoint? Did you feel like there was any disadvantages to leaving during residency? Yeah, definitely. Because it's only a one-year program the, for us, everything runs on a one-year cycle. And because I left in the middle of the year, um, everything kind of just got put on hold which was fine, but I actually only took a six month maternity leave. So when I came back, my rotations were all different, but I had the same academic programming. Basically, again, I did the same six months twice, essentially. Um, so that just made it a little bit tricky to navigate. My program was awesome helping me sort that out. Like I attended some of our courses that we do or some of our academic half days that were um, procedural based or kind of unique to that time period, either during my mat leave or Actually, after I was done the program, I came back and did a few things as well. That part of it was a little bit tricky to make sure I got the full complement of the year um, rather than just the same six months twice. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you had to tailor a little bit your rotations and your learning when you got back. But it's not like you felt that you lost any core material or core rotations. Is that fair to say? Definitely not. No, that's for sure. Which is really reassuring, right? For you know, many of us who may be thinking or planning potentially, that's reassuring to know. Yeah. Um, and obviously, a lot of that has to do with the support from the program. Exactly. Now, you just shared with me offline the news that you are currently just about to start your second maternity leave. That is correct. Uh, which congratulations, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. Uh, super exciting. The interesting thing is going to be that now you are a staff, as we mentioned, mm -hmm. um, and you'll be taking maternity leave during staff as opposed to residency. Do you foresee any advantages or differences when comparing the two? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been thinking about that 
a lot kind of as I go through the process because it's you know easy to draw parallels to my last experience with this. I would say, I mean, on the one hand, as a resident, it's great because you get your top up through Paro. You have an ongoing income during most of your leave um, and then EI for the other portions, depending on how long you take. And I won't really have that for this one. Uh, there is an OMA program where you get uh, some income for 17 weeks. Um, so you do get something. It's not like you get nothing. Uh, so, which I don't think I fully understood that uh, before. But there's a good portion of my leave will have no income at all, which is kind of stressful. But at the same time, your income also changes quite drastically from resident to staff. So, really, when you look at my income on a whole for a year, I'm going to take another six month leave. My, my whole income for the year is still probably more than I would have made as a resident. So as long right. as you plan ahead for it um, and sort of recognize that, it's actually not as daunting as I thought it might be. Right. And if I may go back to a point that you brought up, what is the top up for when you were a resident? Um, unless it's changed, when I went off, it was you got 85% of your income for a half a year, essentially. And then you go down to no top up from Paro and you just get EI. So something to support, I guess, our current possible residents who may be thinking about this, but certainly different when it comes to looking at amount or, I guess, income you make comparing it as a resident to that as a staff. Fair to say? Absolutely. Great. Now, you talked a little bit about the advantages or rather the disadvantages as well from an income perspective. Is there any other advantages that you foresee from an academic perspective? taking maternity leave during staff life as opposed to residency? I mean, advantages wise, there's definitely a little bit more flexibility depending on what your group is like. Like Mm -hmm. you can sort of tailor your schedule. Like for the example, towards the end of my pregnancy, I have been working fewer shifts. So that's been kind of nice. Whereas as a resident, you're kind of on or off. I mean, there's definitely accommodations that can be made, but it's a little bit trickier with the service requirements and all that. Um, Whereas if I want to drop down to 10 shifts a month or eight shifts a month, that's a little bit easier to do. Um, depending on what your group is like, but I would suspect most are that way. And then mm-hmm. also when you come back, you can sort of ramp up as quickly or as gradually as you want to as well. Um, so there's just a little bit more flexibility there. That would probably be the biggest difference schedule-wise. And then um, I guess the other thing I do think about as well, as I was mentioning before, when I came back during residency after my leave, um, I was resident still, so I had support from staff and from colleagues around and that sort of thing. Whereas when I come back from this leave, I'm going to be staff and there's not really that handholding that I had that time around. But I have a really supportive group as well um, of colleagues. So I suspect, I mean, it's definitely going to be different, but I'm thankful for that. And uh, certainly people around that can be helpful if needed. Absolutely. Well, that's nice to hear, but it sounds like we're going to have to just bring you back on another episode after you finish your second maternity leave and talk to you then about the advantages and disadvantages maybe once you've gone through it. But that's fair. That's good to know, especially for some of our current or future residents who may be planning ahead. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit, Alison, about the importance of planning ahead as much as possible when it comes to taking parental leave and maybe some of the challenges with coming back to work whether that's as a staff or resident at the end of your maternity leave. But what about during maternity leave or paternity leave for that matter? 
What would be some of your advice to people who may be heading that way very shortly? Yeah, for sure. And that was definitely something I stressed about um, as well. I would say the biggest advice I have around that is to just enjoy your leave. Enjoy your time with your little one. They have a long life ahead of them and you'll have lots of time with them, but it's a really special opportunity to be home with your child. I did use the time. I did a couple of courses. I did a little bit of reading and that helped me feel a little bit more prepared, especially towards the end of my leave as I was getting ready to come back. But I would say your leave is for your time as a parent and definitely focus on that. Everything will come back. Your skills will come back um, when you come back to work. So try not to worry about that too much and just enjoy the time you have at home. That's really nice to hear, especially in this world where we're constantly, you know, trying to achieve more, I think. Mm -hmm. It's important to hear that reassurance that it's okay to just be enjoying parenthood while you're on maternity leave. Fair to say? Yes, definitely. Um, what would be one advice or your advice rather to some of the current residents who may be considering taking maternity or paternity leave during residency? Um, I would say to make sure you talk to your program early. I mean, you know, within reason, of course, but um, just to come up with a plan because it definitely is made smoother if your program is on board. Well, they'll always be on board, but I mean, um, if they sort of know things ahead of time and you can have a look at your schedule, what rotations you're going to have sort of before and after your leave, what rotations you'll have leading up to your leave, as well as when you come back. If it's early enough, you may be able to tailor some things to um, sort of make things as supportive and um, things that make the most sense as possible to have a break between. So I would say definitely making sure you do that. And then reaching out to other colleagues who've done maternity leaves or paternity leaves, just to make sure you feel connected still and uh, have someone to sort of go to to ask questions about because things always come up that you never really anticipate. Right. So key learning points here is reach out early or as early as you deem to be reasonable um, to your program directors or the program administrators so you can plan ahead as much as possible in terms of your academic rotations and reach out to the support network that you may have, whether that's, you know, other physicians or residents who may have gone through a similar process um, or colleagues. Fair to say? Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much, Allison. That was yeah. super useful. And personally, I think is a topic that we may not uh, speak about it as openly as some of us may wish to, for whatever reason that may be. And so it's really nice to hear from someone who's gone through this already and be able to share some of the wisdom and some of the pearls that you've learned through the process. Yeah, of course. I it's definitely not always something that's easy to, to navigate and it can be a little bit daunting to think about. Um, so yeah, happy to help in any way I can. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!